Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. My name is Chad. I'm the Duke. My name is Liz. I'm the Duchess. And we are here ready to read Brandon Sanderson's The Way of Kings, chapters 6 through 11. So through to the end of part one. That's right. On our next book club, we're going to read the interludes at the end of part one and chapters 12 through 14. All right. Excited to read it. I'm excited to get back into it because, as you know, or not everybody knows, I guess, I have to stop reading once I get to that point because I can't go ahead because I can't be spoiled, which brings us to our spoiler policy, which is that Liz has read so much Brandon Sanderson. Have you read every Brandon Sanderson novel? I have read Every Brandon Sanderson novel and short story. And, and many blog graphic, posts. And graphic Graphic novels. novels. Yeah. I'm all, all right. up in his business. Some of them multiple times, including these. I Grocery have, store receipts. <laughs> all right, now, now you're getting, you're getting a little creepy. <laughs> um, I have not read any of Brandon, Brandon Sanderson's works other than the handful of chapters that we talked about. So we will not spoil anything beyond what we've talked, what we talk about here with the way of Kings uh, up through chapter 11. So that is our spoiler policy. Now we will be discussing as we've talked about before, all of Brandon Sanderson's works are connected. He, in this uh, shared fictional universe called the Cosmere, we will be discussing the Cosmere, and some of the connections insofar as they do not spoil specific plot points at this stage in the podcast. You can certainly look later on. We, we hope to do some um, broader Cosmere topics. But for right now, we're just doing a book club, reading through The Way of Kings, and won't be getting into anything that's going to spoil anything for people who haven't read the books yet. All right, so... so Give me your overall impression, just a couple of words, of the section that we read this week. So this section was, there was it was more conflict-heavy, for sure, uh, and a little tougher reading. I don't mean that in that it was not enjoyable reading. I mean, you know, one of our main characters just goes through hell, and it was just a lot of fairly dark stuff but we did learn some more things good world building and i'm excited to kind of continue this is sort of like the uh sort of like the tarbian years for for kaladin yes this is definitely kaladin's emo phase yeah this is his his matt cawthon with the giant ruby yeah yeah i'm sorry have you gotten into that with the wheel of time yet? yeah yeah you've gotten past the giant ruby yeah yeah those were tough (laughs) those were some tough chapters so you know and even um even shallan has some some rough going kind of at the beginning but but each of their little mini arcs here in part one 
sort of ends with ends on an upswing. So it, so it's good. It's encouraging. Uh, you know, good reason to want to go forward and read again. But yeah, it was definitely heavy sledding for a little bit of this. So chapter six is called Bridge Four. <sighs> Man. And it was a tough one to read, and a lot happens in this chapter. This was probably my longest plot summary that yeah, I wrote. I think I had more notes in this section than any of the other chapters as well. There's a lot of information coming at you in this chapter, particularly about how the Alethi are waging this war. So we've learned so far that the king of the Alethi was killed by these this group of people, the Parshendi, and they made this pact all the different high princes of the Alethi made this pact to go and avenge him somehow. It's kind of a vague, nebulous sort of revenge. They don't have a specific person they're targeting. They're just getting vengeance. So they're all camped out here in this area called the Shattered Plains, sort of tenuously working together. And we learn a lot in this chapter about exactly what that style of warfare looks like and some of the different high princes and we find this out because uh, Kaladin obviously has been sold into one of these war camps. And it's the war camp of High Prince Sadius, who happens to be the High Prince of the area of Alethkar that he is from. Yes. It's a kind of a twist of fate. Uh, most of, of the slaves that Kaladin is with are, are sent to forest duty or other kinds of menial labor. But because Kaladin has supposedly infected his wagon with talk of escape and his history of being a deserter, they all get sent to the bridge crews. So he thinks that this means they'll be building bridges. <laughs> Boy, is he wrong. Yeah, it's something a little different than that. So what did you think about the Alethi style of warfare? I mean, none of it makes any sense. And that's Kaladin's impression, too. So um, basically, and, and more stuff happens in the chapter. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's so it's interesting because like so much in this book, it's dependent on the topography and kind of the land kind of mm -hmm. dictates how they're pursuing these these people, the Parshendi. So the Shattered Plains are like a giant plateau that looks like it's been cracked. Yeah, so and there are chasms and just running all through it. Right. Uh, which obviously pose a problem for somebody attempting to wage war in that area. Right, so you, you can't use have wheeled carts or the, the terrain is very rocky. So if you want to move quickly, it's very difficult. So what they have are these wooden bridges that are carried by slaves and the slaves pick up the bridge, they carry it to the chasm, they put it down, they slide it across and then the army can cross. So... It, I mean, it's one of the more horrendously stupid things I've ever seen. Right? So, I mean, so much so that the whole time I'm thinking, well, there's just got to be something else going on here that I, that we're just not getting yet. You know, and, and the other thing I'm thinking is why would you hold a war here, right? I don't get the impression that this is like, I, I don't know. I don't know, but I don't get the impression that this is like the Parshendi stronghold and at the center of the Shattered Plain is some monumentous, you know, capital of the Parshendi princes. And if they can take it, 
they'll get revenge. Like I, I don't, it doesn't seem to have a lot of strategic value. So there's got to be something else going on. And I, th- and I think we get some hints at it later. We do. Um, one, one point though, and it probably hasn't been made very clear yet, but this is where the Parshendi are from. Oh, okay. This is where they were first found. However, I think you're absolutely right in your, you know, suspicions and, and you're meant to start to have those suspicions and Kaladin even voices them. This doesn't make sense. He goes out on his first bridge run and not only is it horrendously difficult to carry this bridge. So, and because Kaladin has managed to piss off the sergeant in charge named Gaz, he is sent out with no protective vest or even shoes. And he is just sent out running, running, running with this bridge. So not only is that very difficult, but when they get to the battle, they're the first ones there and they have no shields and no armor, and they're just being, they just get shot at. And the enemy's waiting for The enemy's yeah. waiting and just slaughters them. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah, horrible. Ranks of bows at point range. So Kaladin manages to survive, but he's, he's just stupefied by how completely horrible it is. Well, the other, the other part of it, too, that I sort of feel like doesn't get enough play in the, in the writing, but I, I could be wrong, is, you couldn't do this. Like, I don't think there's a human being alive on our planet who could do this three times a week. You know, like I tried to get a sense of how many like miles they were running and how many times they had to hoist that thing around. And, you know, it's, it's like they had to run 10 miles with that thing, you know, and pick it up and put it down 20 times. You know, over bridges, over rocks. Uh, and I've, you know, I've carried like heavy timbers. They said, he said it was made out of a lighter type of wood. But, you know, if you carry, you know, a heavy pine timbers, you and somebody else, like, man, it's, it is, it's not easy to like try to run with something on your head or holding it. It's, yeah, it, it does not seem like it would be physically possible. So, there are two points about the planet of Roshar, which this is part of the greater Cosmere stuff. And I do not think that telling you spoils anything okay. um, because it's very subtle and it's not something I even knew about until much, much later. Can I take a guess at it? Yes. Do okay. Oh, that's, this is fun. Yeah. I'm beginning. Uh, so my take is that maybe the people who live on Roshar aren't built like regular humans and they have different capacity for physical feats and endurance and things of that nature. That was my stab. Maybe they're just not human, you know? And so what to us is, would be nigh impossible to do on a regular basis is still tough for them, but not, but not the same. You're looking at me in a way that says, that's not at all what I was going to say. <laughs> it's not, but that's a really good guess, and this is really fun. Right. So um, in the the collection of short stories that was put out by Brandon Sanderson, it's called Arcanum Unbounded, and it's all the Cosmere short stories and, and stuff of the different planets, and there's an introduction that talks about each of the planets mm-hmm. written by um, a character from one of his graphic novels, White Sands, who is this like 
she's like this world hopping scholar. Okay. So she's not in the book or anything, but she okay. gives this little like, this is what we know about Scadriel. This is what we yeah, know about yeah. Roshar. So mm-hmm. this is where this information comes from. Okay. But um, it says in that book that Roshar has lighter gravity uh, okay. than kind of her base planet. And also that it has extremely high oxygen content in the atmosphere. Which is gotcha. why okay. they um, most people end up using um, they they developed the using the spheres for light because fire is generally something that's not always a great idea. Yeah, I mean, okay. obviously, you use it if you have to, but there's very little flammable stuff that survived. That's why the vegetation like sucks itself back down into the ground as well. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because that was actually thinking as I'm reading through this, particularly when we get into Shallon's chapters, I'm like, why, you know, like we have to use these uh, spheres for light, but that's money. You know, you're burning money every time you do. And I'm like, don't these people have torches? And I remembered in the prologue, there was reference to torches, but then I went through and I'm like, there's really no reference to torches anywhere else up to this point that we've read. And also I started thinking about it. There's very little reference to like trees either. And the vegetation, you know, lives in these like carbuncles that like retract into the ground. And like, then I started thinking about the art and I'm like, there's very few, there's, yeah, I don't see a lot of flammable materials. I think that fire and torches and things are just not as common here. Exactly. And and also because of the high oxygen content, that is why they're able to have these giant crustaceans that don't collapse under the weight of their their own bodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of their you know, shell, you have yeah. some of these really interesting creatures that have been able to to grow that big. Mm-hmm. So it's just really cool the level of detail that's been put into it. And again, this is like Man, their horses must be lightning fast. Oh, wait till you read about the horses. I'm not even going to get into that right now. Okay, all right. But um, but there's some magic horses. So there is a rational reason There is why. a reason. And isn't that, I don't know, I just think it's cool. I Yeah, somebody can carry, you know, massive, massive timbers 10 miles but it's over still and over. It's still bloody sucks. awful. Still bloody sucks. Awful. Yeah, Terrible. Yeah. Terrible Oof. day for Kaladin. Mm. He survives, though. He miraculously, even though he is put in the front of the bridge, is which it is miraculous, the worst spot. Or is it protagonist genetics? Maybe a little both. <laughs> You'll have to read and find out. I'm sorry. Go ahead. He is. He does. He li- He lives, though, through the battle. He's yeah. not expected to. Gaz was expecting him to die. And his life is ultimately saved by the wind spren that's been following him. Because once he gets, you know, he lives through the battle and then he collapses and he wakes up with her kind of zapping him. Yeah. So apparently Windspren can kind of zap people and she wakes him up. He's he's passed out there and he's about to get left behind. And he when he she does that, he finally asks her if she has a name, not like really expecting her to to say yes, because as far as he knows, Spren can't even really carry on conversations. And she says that she does. And then she says, why do I have a name? So it's unusual mm-hmm. even for her. So it's an interesting process we see there. And that's kind of one of my big um, character development notes for this chapter is. That Syl gets a name. 
is yes, this cat, this character, Silfrena or Sil, um, is like we're watching her develop sentience. Yeah, yeah. So it's, that's just kind of a fun thing to watch. And then she says, "It's amusing. It appears I have a nickname, which I thought was funny." Yeah, that was that was funny. Yeah. I wish I could just have a nickname appear. <laughs> I'm not going to let it go. You you can have a nickname. <laughs> so we had a couple of, of characters had, introduced in this chapter too, though. Yeah, somebody referred to you by your nickname on social media. We'll talk about it when we talk about that later. Yeah. So we have Gaz get introduced. He's the lesser sergeant who is in charge of the bridge crews. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he's pretty much a cardboard mean sergeant character he kind of is yep, yep um yep. not cardboard in a bad way because we've just barely been introduced to him but we can definitely tell he's going to be like he's petty he's cruel he's insecure he has one eye um it's really not a whole lot else you need to know really yeah yeah and we have a uh, lamarill i think that's how you pronounce it yeah and we also have brightness hashal who are sort of the the light eyes in charge of this operation. Yeah, and uh, none of them really make a huge positive impression. Like Certainly not. I mean, at, at this point, it's just lots of mean people and then Kaladin. Uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's not, I mean... It's not a lot of nice people no. in Roshar. We haven't met the nice people in Roshar yet. No, not, not <laughs> yet. You know, the... The way that Brightness Ashal, who is the Alethi noblewoman who buys the slaves, like the way that she treats them is just so inhuman and talks about them. Like it's just, I don't know, maybe it shouldn't be weird given our own history, but she treats them like like chattel slaves, like as though they're not human. And yet we also have this weird system by which they have certain rights and can buy their freedom. And I don't know, it's a weird juxtaposition. And I haven't really figured out, you know, what all, how to take that yet. So there definitely seems to be, like you said, a big disconnect between what the Alethi social structure and the the nobility is supposed to be like and what they actually are like. And yeah. we hear... Um, and that's not unusual. And this is a, a definitely a deliberate exploration of that, I think. We hear the, the other slaves talking about Bright Lord Dalinar, who is supposedly supposed to be the honorable one, the one, the light eyes who's actually like a light eyes. He's never broken his word. He doesn't yeah. use the bridge crews that Sidious does. Kaladin um, kind of hears them say that and responds in a very cynical way that he thought Bright, you know, Bright Lord Amaram was like that. He was supposed to be the honorable one. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that makes sense to me that they have these sort of rules that, oh, no, we, we pay our slaves. We, they can earn their way to freedom, you know, to make themselves feel, you know, they, they feel that they're virtuous in their rule. But in reality, it doesn't come down to that. Yeah, and the other thing about it, too, is that, you know, Kaladin is a, a, now he's a dark eye, but he's a free citizen of the second non, and if this guy can be branded a slave, then anybody can be. 
And I believe that even Shalon, who is a light eyes and a noble woman, feared being enslaved as a consequence of her family's debts. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I do recall that being brought up. Yep. So, yeah, it's a it's a pretty ugly part of this of their society. And we just you know, this whole chapter is just ugly piled upon ugly. And we'd be remiss not to also mention the the Parshman. Kaladin gets to the Shattered Plains and is really surprised to find that they have Parshman even working here. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, they're fighting against, I guess they're like the cousins of the Parshman, the Parshendi. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Literally, their name means Parshman who can think. So they're the same race, but the Parshmen are now even lower down. And when when you talk about humans being treated as animals, the Parshmen actually are not even seen as people. Yeah, they, they're yeah. even mentioned by some of our protagonists, Shalon and Kaladin, as mm. being um, almost like animals, like not even like real people. So that's interesting, and makes you wonder where that that dynamic obviously isn't going to stay that way. No. Yeah. That's throughout the novel. Clearly going somewhere. So then the other, so the other comment I have, there's like two more things I wanted to bring up in this chapter. So the first is anticipation spread. Really? Are we taking this thing a little too far? Oh, Chad, we have not even scratched the surface. Okay. We have not even scratched the spread surface. I spent way too much time thinking about Spren over the last week. <laughs> I really did. So, um, and then the the chapter ends with them arriving at some sort of massive, like, chrysalis yes. type thing in the ground, uh, uh, the, or that's springing from the ground that he says is 20 feet tall and is sliced open, but doesn't go any further in this chapter into it. So this offhand comment, and that's kind of how we end the chapter. No further details. Right. So chapter seven is called Anything Reasonable. And it begins as all of these, except for the flashbacks, begin with a dying quote. This one I thought was interesting because it mentions... uh, people with their skin aflame. They're being attacked mm. by someone with their skin aflame. Um, but in this chapter... I need to pay more attention to those. Yeah. Some of them some of them are are more interesting than others. But yeah, there's def- they're definitely not throwaway. They're not there just to like set the mood. It's not... They're not little throwaway quotes. All right. So in this chapter, we go back to Shalon. And she has just been rejected by Jasna Colon. She is petitioned to be her ward. Mm-hmm. And after Jasna quizzed her, she found her education lacking and told her to get out of my face. She she gave her the hand. She gave her the hand. The face wasn't listening. Nope. But Shalana's is not one to take no for an answer. So she heads right back to Jasna's reading alcove at the Palanium, which is just a, like a hella big library in the city of Carbranth. And she writes her a letter trying to explain her situation a little more thoroughly and asking her to reconsider. And while she's waiting for her to return, she meets an ardent named Capsule, who is there hoping to convert Jasna back to the devotaries. Uh, Jasna shows up and is not happy to see her. 
that's the end of that chapter. Yeah, absolutely. This was also a fairly long chapter, although it didn't, again, we don't really get the resolution to uh, this uh, story arc for her in this chapter, but th- but a lot goes on here. We start to get deeper into Shallan's past and her family, particularly her father. Right. We learn the details of Shallan's family's struggle and why they needed a soul caster to secure their fortune. It turns out that their father had an illegal soul caster that he used to make marble deposits on their land. And that's where their wealth came from. So it was the soul caster that was illegal. I was a little unclear as to what the conflict was, because I took it that it was his crafting marble and then selling it that was somehow frowned upon, which I couldn't understand why that would be. No, so it it really hasn't been stated explicitly. It's been hinted at, but the soul casters are are precious and are supposed to only be used by the ardents. There's like a special order of them that will use the soul casters and they'll make food and they'll make shelters and stuff like that. But the fact that Jasna has one is a big part of the reason why the church does not like her. She has a very powerful one. And because she's the sister of the king is the only way she gets, the only reason she gets away with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, otherwise, she wouldn't. So for Shalon's father to have one was, and and we know that also that um, Jacaved, the country that they're from, mm-hmm. is among the most strict and religiously devout countries. So for him to have it was, would not be cool. Gotcha. Okay. All right. That that makes more sense because I'm I'm thinking why is this such a big deal? Like people are using soul casters all the time. Like you know, like every like you got a soul. I got a soul caster. Everybody gets a soul caster. Look under I your want seat. A soul caster. Look under, well, look under your seat. There's a soul <laughs> cast. You know. I mean, they're not all that rare. I mean, they're not super common. But there's one in the army. We go in the merchants' uh, building, and parts of the building were made by soul casting. They're not incredibly rare, so I just couldn't understand why this guy making marble with it was somehow so frowned upon. So I appreciate you kind of giving me that context. It makes makes more sense now. Yeah, unfortunately, Shalon's father's soul caster was broken when he died. We still don't know the specifics of how he died because it was obviously something very traumatic. Every time Shalon starts to think about it, she pushes it to the back of her mind. Nope, don't think about that. But we do know that the plan is for her to switch out the broken soul caster for Jasna's working one. And then I guess sneak off back to Jacoved. Which thankfully makes more sense than what I said last week was that she was going to steal it and try to fence it, which right was astronomically stupid now this is only really stupid not astronomically stupid but it's still really stupid like it's still not a good idea you know of course the thing about it is i don't know how identical these things look i'm assuming i'm completely making an assumption here but given that they fit different people i'm assuming they don't all look identical well, I think as far as we know, the one that Shalon has and the one that Jasna has do look pretty much identical. Okay. All right. As far as she can tell. Time to pull the old switcheroo, baby. See if she can pull it off. However, first she has to get accepted as her ward. And that hasn't happened at the end of this chapter. 
But we do get to also, uh, Shallan's an interesting character, you know, and we get a lot of glimpses of kind of dual nature of her personality here. Mm -hmm. You know, on one hand, she's very timid. She thinks of herself as very timid. She's uh, terrified of confrontation. But at the same time, you get the sense that that's not her real self because she's got this inner determination. So in one sentence, she's saying, what was I thinking? I can't do this. I'm terrified of confrontation. But then in another, she's just saying, well, I have to convince her like anything else is unacceptable. It's it's this kind of back and forth and it's it's interesting. Yeah, and there's definitely a difference in, uh, I'm echoing what you said, but there's definitely a difference in how she behaves versus how she regards herself, for sure. And in this section, that becomes clear. I think especially especially as we move on, not as much in this chapter, but when we get into other chapters, I think that becomes more clear. We also get to witness Shalan's abilities when it comes to taking memories and drawing. And we've known she's an artist and we've seen her draw before, but Shalan has the ability to perfectly memorize anything in front of her and then render it exactly onto paper and she just kind of you know when she's describing it it's not anything miraculous but when other people see her work they're astounded but so she's very very good and some a phrase that really jumped out at me this time through was when she was she was drawing um and she's thinking about what she's doing as she's drawing and how it relaxes her, it clears her mind. And she says that um, when she, she feels like when she draws someone, she captures a piece of them. And yeah. she says mm-hmm. that she feels like her medium isn't really even pencils. Her medium was like the soul itself. Like she's capturing a piece of their soul and putting it into her drawing. And that really stuck out at me because I just read... And no spoilers here, but there, there was a short story that Brandon Sanderson wrote on another world. It's called The Emperor's Soul. And the magic system in that story, it's one of my favorite things he's ever written. But the magic system involved people being able to change the soul of an object or a person. And they did it by carving these stamps. Mm-hmm. So they could convince the object to become something else or become a better version of itself by uh, carving its history onto a stamp and carving a new history or amending its history. So if you have an old table, you want it to look nice, you could carve a history for it wherein it had been taken care of properly and you would stamp it and that's how the magic would happen. I'm not explaining it very well because (laughs) obviously he spends chapters and chapters explaining it. But, um, but the idea of being able to change the soul of an object or manipulate Mm -hmm. the soul of an object is, is interesting to see it like kind of pop up here a little bit. And we know that the magic systems, the magic systems on all of his worlds are similar, but kind of connect, not exactly the same. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's just just something to put a pin in right there. What Shalon can do. I don't, I don't think that, that phrase is used accidentally. A couple of things popped out to me in this chapter. So last chapter we had anticipation spread. Now we have creation spread. Yes. Why is there no deception spread when Shalon's talking to Jasna? Oh, you are so smart. I, I can't tell you that yet. 
Oh, so there's an answer to that question. Can't tell you. <laughs> but you're smart. You can neither confirm nor deny. I can neither confirm the nor deny of said the deception, Spren. Of a lie, Spren. Hmm. All right. You're so smart. Okay, we'll see. Why I like you. So there's a lot of references again to Jasna's father in this section, right? And particularly, like you said, his death and how she really won't go down that road of thinking about it. She won't dwell upon it. It's obviously something that's still very painful for her, but we do get a a couple of things that slip out. The first is a reference. She says that Nonbalat bruised, his coat torn, a long silvery sword in her hand sharp enough to cut stones. So question for you. Shard blades are not super common, but common enough that people talk about them. Right. They've been seen on the world. Sen says, will somebody be here in the battle with a shard blade? Right. If somebody saw one, would they be able to immediately identify it, or would it blend in like any other sword? Most people seeing a shard blade would know that it was a shard blade. So most people is this reference, this sentence, a long silvery sword sharp enough to cut stones. Is it a reference to a shard blade or just or is that just a a metaphor for a really sharp sword? That's a good question. Don't don't close one eye at me. Don't (laughs) give me your charming smirk. It won't work. So, I mean, there's been several references to shard blades being able to cut through stone and steel. Mm-hmm. And here, the only sort of thing she lets slip is at the moment of her father's death where the soul caster also got damaged. So it was clearly something catastrophic. He didn't, he didn't choke to death. And then we have this reference to her holding a sword sharp enough to cut stone. To cut stone as if it was water, I think is what she says. Okay, all right. So yeah, put a pin in that. Okay. There's also several references, like a couple of references in this chapter at least, to her having conflict with her father. One, when she spoke with the parchment who her father didn't approve of, and another when she drew pictures of dark eyes that her father also did not approve of. I really am starting to not like this guy. Yeah, he's a right prick. Absolutely. Okay. All right, so it sounds like. Okay. So those were things that, that kind of popped up and, and came to my mind. How is it that they managed to keep their father's death a secret? These people are rich enough to like have like attendants and servants and they're like minor nobles. How do they keep people quiet? Especially when they don't have enough money to bribe people. So I believe that what we know so far is that A, they're rural country, way, way out in the country, nobles. 
it's not a household that gets visited a whole lot. I would assume that some of the servants are in on it. There's a, a servant named Luesh who's mentioned who mm-hmm. was trained to use the soul caster, who knew about it, who tried to fix it after the death of their father. So I would I would imagine that's they have some trusted household staff who know, but it's a matter of their father's creditors and his um you know, his political rivals who they are trying to keep at bay. Because once those people find out that he's dead, then it's it's curtains gotcha. for the whole family. And they'll all be probably taken in, into slavery. All right, cool. There are also two other, th- two references in this chapter, two names. One I can't remember precisely because it's really freaking long. Uh, who's the name of like their god? Elethanathiel. Elethanathile. Or Elethanathile? It sounds more... Just rolls off the tongue. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it sounds like me trying to, you know, order in a French restaurant, right? And then there's also Vedaledev's Golden Keys. Somebody says, by Vedaledev's Golden Keys. Both of those are palindromes. And then... All throughout this section. Could you guys hear my shocked face <laughs> that I just made? I did I didn't catch that. There wow, are, that's so awesome. There are like four palindromes in these sections that hold we on, read today. It is a palindrome. Yeah. Wow. So there are two references in this chapter, and in the other chapters that we read, there are at least two more chapters. Or two more references to palindrome. Two more names of palindromes. I didn't catch any of these palindromes. I love a good palindrome. <laughs> Damn. By Vedaledev's race car. And, you know, the only thing I can figure, it looks like they all have some sort of reference back to some sort of religion or creation myth or something. They all seem to be gods of some kind. And all their names are palindromes. I don't have a conclusion to make from that yet. Just an observation. Just an observation, yeah. Every time I see one of them, I'm like, okay, well, you know, and I started to add them up in my brain. I'm like, these are all references to some sort of religious icon or figure or some, something like that. Yeah, that is that is a very interesting point. Um, the note that I took about elethanathile, elethanathile, is that um, it's translated he who transforms. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about the, the emperor's soul and how transforming objects. And and Shalon's memory of the, the soul emperor's casting. soul? That book that I told, the other book with the stamps. Oh, oh okay. That yeah, one. Yeah. But how soul casting is a little bit similar to that, not exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But um, when Shalon is remembering jasna doing the soul casting she talks about the boulder sucking away the stormlight and giving up its essence to become something new Mm. so you know at its core all of the the magic systems in all of these different worlds hinge on a few central commonalities and i it seems like i think that's one of them so that's just interesting to know and i hope not too spoilery but i just think it's cool So uh, the other thing we learn about there, or at least the religion that that Shalan follows, is that they choose something called a glory and a calling. Yes, that's right. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
and that the, the ardent's job is to help people choose and follow their glories and their callings. And we know that Shalon's calling is natural history. So I guess that's like picking your major, but more <laughs> serious and religious like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if my calling, <laughs> I'm trying to pick a calling that doesn't need a lab. <laughs> so is this ardent in this chapter hitting on her? He's wicked hitting on her. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that yeah. wasn't just me. Okay. Brother Capsule is definitely, definitely got it for Shalon. Right? Yeah. He's pretty forward about it, too. He's hey. not really, he's not really hiding it. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Shalon's an interesting character because she's obviously physically attractive. Mm. All the men around her always tell her she's pretty. They, you know, um, hit on her in various ways. I really enjoy the way she reacts to those. Mm -hmm. She doesn't think of herself that way, uh, but she kind of hides behind her wit a little bit and, and is always able to turn it back on them. Yeah. Um, in a way, and, you know, one of the sailors says, Oh, you're, you're just like the sunrise. And she says, you mean I'm, I'm too red and I tend to make men grumpy when they see me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I had one more thing in chapter okay. seven that again, just kind of jumped out at me this time around talking about the Palanium, which is the huge library there that funds the hospital of Carbranth, which is, you know what Carbranth is, I think famous for the hospital because people can come from all over. They can be healed. They don't charge any money, mm -hmm. but the Palanium is very expensive to get into. But I noted here that it was built before recorded human history and they suspect it was someone called the Dawn Singers. So again, we've mm. got this sort of history before history, which yeah. is kind of a common thing in fantasy, but really adds depth to the world building and I'll always just make a note when, when that's something like that is mentioned. So chapter eight is called Nearer the Flame. And thankfully it picks right up with the angry Jasna because we get to find out what happens there. And what happens is, she boots her out of her reading alcove and tells her she never wants to see her stupid face again. Get the hell out of here. So Go poor, poor Shalon is like, Shoo. I, I'm done and I'm done. I'm absolutely done. She leaves. Um, she doesn't make it very far before she has to kind of sit down and hyperventilate a little bit. She gets called back in um, to get her spheres because, you know, you leave a scrunchie on the table. You have to... <laughs> But she does mention her letter to Jasna. Jasna reads the letter. The letter explains that Shalon, you know, is completely self-taught. She never had any kind of education. And Jasna says, you know what? You're right. So here we, we, we learn that she is incredibly prideful and kind of a bee. But Jasna, we see a side of her that's hum more humble and willing to admit that she may have made a mistake. And she kind of doesn't accept her as a ward, but she says, you know what? I will allow you to repetition me at a later date. Shalon's like, thanks for nothing. <laughs> Doesn't really help. I need your soul caster now, but okay. So she leaves and then she has this idea as she's, um, she, she meets up with Yalb, the sailor who walked her from the boat to the Palanium, which mm. feels like a long time ago, but really was only a few hours. And she decides to go and, and buy as many books as she can and just cram uh, until Jasna leaves Carbranth and then try to impress her one more time. And they have, they have a, a fun little mini con that her and Yalb run on the bookseller. And then she heads back with all her new books. 
and basically starts studying. Jasna sees her there and says, God damn it, I'm never going to be <laughs> rid of you. <laughs> you know what? Pack your things. Come on. <laughs> You can be, and she, and so she accepts her as a ward at last. She nagged her into accepting her as a ward. Full on stage three clinger. Right? This is how single white female went. Wore her down. Oh, I remember. This is just, this is exactly like it. So my first note for this chapter is life spren. Yes. You mean rogue semen? <laughs> Somebody left some life spren here <laughs> oh, on these sweatpants, apparently. <laughs> I, I don't think I can read this book anymore. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so I mean, wrong. Life spread. <sighs> no, it's not like that. It's not like, okay. I mean, all right. <laughs> I just looking for clarification. Oh. There's no cheating spread, though. <laughs> that we know of. That we know of. I'm not sure that Shalon has yet to meet a logic spread. No, it doesn't sound like she has. She's got her. She's all filled with sassy spren. She does have the sass spren. She's going on. She's ten pounds of sass on five pound back. She is. But, but that's it. Okay. <laughs> so once again, we get some backstory about her dead father, mm-hmm. and she says that there were these strange maps in her dead father's study. I know what they show. I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on life spread, but go ahead. <laughs> what do they show? They show uh, where Chester Copperpot buried the treasure of One-Eyed Willie. Oh, dang. Well, that's a valuable map then. I mean, strange maps show up in her dead father's study. I f- feel like it's probably going to come back around. Yes, probably. It's not really a throwaway line. Um, She also mentions a secret that she carries, which is hidden 10 heartbeats away. So that's significant. Yeah, I caught that line. I don't really, I don't have any evidence yet to to make it. It's just something to, it's just a clue to file away. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is the girl who plans to rob Jasna. But when she goes out and she finds Yalb cheating, she's like, you cheated. Mm-hmm. How about a, just a little bit of self-awareness? Yeah. Like, Shalon is very good at compartmentalizing. Yeah. That's like, one way of putting it. Almost yeah. pathologically so. I think that's definitely a, a defining aspect of her character. Uh, yeah, she's not super self-aware. No. No, and you could tell she has a lot of memories actively locked away. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But also, again, I think she spent so long in an abusive household being forced to be a certain way. She has no idea who she really is. Mm, yeah. Do we ever get her age? I mean, I we take it that she's young. I, I mean, 
I honestly, it's possible it's mentioned. I didn't note it down. Okay. All right. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but she is in her like late teens. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Mid to late teens. So I noted that when she's interacting with the book merchant, she almost becomes like Jasna. You know, the way she's treating him and talking to him and the way she's dismissive and just thinking, you know, three steps ahead of him. She was on the other side of that conversation an hour ago, you know, but she doesn't recognize that. Yes. And Shalon is definitely a chameleon. She's she's able to change who she is in in different situations. Yep. Uh, give kind of according to what people's expectations of her are. So it is interesting. That's an interesting aspect of her character. I like Shalon as a character. I think she's very interesting. I understand why people find her annoying, especially at this stage. But I haven't read enough to have an opinion of one way or the other. I'm just collecting facts at this point. Mm -hmm. Two other facts I noted in this chapter are here's actually where we had the other two palindromes. And it's um, not a Natan. Oh, yes, the, the kingdom. the one Which the is where kingdoms. the Parshendi come from. Yep. And the middle moon is called Noman. Hmm. I didn't catch any of those. So just another... Keep them coming. Another thing to file call away. call you the palindrome king. I found four in two chapters. Makes me wonder how many others I've missed. So one of the main things that I kind of jotted down here was I, I just really like the cleverness of having Shalon be a natural history scholar. And then it makes sense to have these sketchbook pages in there. Yeah. But it gives an avenue for a little bit of exposition about the different creatures and how different this world is yeah, without it's a just way. having yeah. kind of like random, you know, it's always tough when you have a character who's just describing something that to them would be kind of every day. But you're like, why are they spending a paragraph like ruminating in their mind about what this, this, this or that looks yeah. like. But for her is a, as a nature scholar, she would be noticing them. She would be asking questions about them and drawing them and stuff. So that's cool. And I love the sketchbook. Um, yeah, it's a pages good idea in there as well. Yeah, it's a good idea. One of the downsides to reading it on an e-reader is the images are too small for me to really get a good look at them. Yes. Yes. And you can um, find them online somewhere yeah, as well. But you have to be careful. Um, yeah. But you do have to be careful about spoilers. And and again, there's not a lot of plot, anything really plot critical in there. It's just kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we learned that a couple of different things about the gender roles. Um, money handling is as a masculine art. But again, reading is completely taboo for men. So we see that with the, the money and, seller... And mathematics. And math, yes. So men can <laughs> handle money, but they can't do math. But they can't count it. They can maybe count. I think probably basic counting is okay, but like any kind of higher math, completely taboo. That's a feminine thing. So And we make... And I, and I make these incredulous sounds like, what? That doesn't... That makes no sense. But I mean, the reality is we have things like that in our culture as well that from the outside would make no sense at all. But we just don't recognize it because we're fully embroiled in it. So, And that's what we love about fantasy is that you can make commentaries on that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the left hand being the taboo body part. Like what? 
you're like, well, yep. that's ridiculous. But we wrap up a lot of things but too. There's certainly things that we wrap up that kind of don't make sense. Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's it's kind of cool. Um, we do have a mention of them burning prayers. So we talked about fire not being used very often, but she does talk about. Um, I guess one of the ways they pray is to write a glyph, a glyph ward. It's a kind of prayer, and then burning it. So it's not that it's it's not seen on the planet at all, but I think it's kind of saved for either extreme situations or for these religious purposes. Yeah, there was also a reference to there was a reference in the merchants building to them turning stone into wood, which I and we've really only seen torches in like the king's castle. It just causes me to think, is wood really highly rare in this area? In this, Yes, you, you don't see wood very much. And in fact, places that, and I don't even know if it's been mentioned, but it's not spoilery. When you do hear about them burning things, it's like dung. They're burning dung or they're yeah, burning yeah. shells. You know, yeah. it's not the same kind of vegetation at all. And the only thing that's strange about that is that they also talk about how swords are something that are only light eyes are supposed to use, which that has some semblance in our own history where swords were considered, I mean, they were very expensive and they were not things that common soldiers would often have in various times in our history. It would seem to me, though, that you know, having rank after rank after rank of spearmen would be, would get very expensive in this world if wood is hard to find. Likewise, arrows. I mean, it's not hard to find in that, um, and I believe that this land also has areas of very different topography. So mm, okay. if you look at the Shattered Plains, the bridges are made out of wood. Oh, yeah, and good they point. have yeah. and they're huge they're huge oh, and yeah, there's point, a yeah. but there's a large forested area right near there mm, yeah, that yeah, they talk okay. about sending the bridgeman out to cut down trees so it's not like it's it's completely scarce or unheard of oh, okay yeah but it's not like it it's not like our planet yeah, yeah it's, okay and again I mean, the the high oxygen content is probably more likely to be well it's that's canon that's brandon sanderson wrote that because mm -hmm. of the high oxygen content they developed this alternate light source rather than just having torches burning everywhere yeah okay yeah okay that makes sense yeah and i forgot you know they arrived in wagons and you know they probably weren't made out of steel right so okay yeah it makes sense so chapter nine is called damn nation damn, damn nation Oh, we didn't even plan that, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so the quote at the beginning of this chapter, I think is interesting because it says that the person who is speaking it is quoted as being one of our own ardents. So we kind mm. of then get a glimpse of who's actually writing all of these down. Mm, yeah, okay. It's, it's the ardents. So in this chapter, Kaladin is hella depressed he tells Syl that he once thought he could save people by killing, but now he just sees himself as a victim. She tells him that she has to leave, but will try to come back. A boy who reminds him of Tien dies, as well as the only other bridgeman in his original cohort. Things are pretty much the worst. And that's 
kind of the whole chapter. Yeah, he's Kaladin being really depressed. Yeah, he's got 1989's Cure of Disintegration in his Walkman. (laughs) Does. You know, listening to Same Deep Waters as You, like, (laughs) on repeat. He's going to ask if you've read The Crow yet. Yes. (laughs) I know that guy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's... uh, I I think I dated that guy. (laughs) I think you might have, actually. So yeah, this is this is a tough chapter. Chapter no misery, Spren. Though no misery, Spren. Didn't see that. So any notes on character development? There's there's kind of a lot going on. Well, the, I mean, the first note I have is actually about the chrysalises again, mm-hmm. and once again it says they now we get a little bit more information, and it says they have gemstones at their heart. Ah, that's a piece. Yeah, especially where we know that there's some, I mean, one of the few things we really know about the magical element in this world is that there are ways that they can capture stormlight in gems. We also know that, well, I was under the impression that the Parshendi were much, much more gifted with this than the Alethi. But that was back when I still thought that our our prelude uh, cat, Seth, was a Parshendi, not when he was a Shin, but he's, but he, but he's a Shin. <laughs> so, I don't know, I'm trying to figure out what that means, but... Well, yeah, the gemstones power the Fabrials, that that run their society. I mean, the the only reason that these war camps can exist is because they have ardents there making food. They're making food for the soldiers from the gemstones. Yeah. Which so, gives you more of a reason to fight over this stupid piece of land. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting also why you wouldn't because one of the other things that crossed my mind is they they run over these chasms over they have several permanent bridges why would you need to have these bridge crews right i mean just put a goddamn bridge down but they don't you know and why is it that they don't do that you know is it because these things are constantly moving or they go they harvest something they move around i'm sure they're also concerned about giving uh, they don't want to make it easier for the enemy i mean so there's some i think tactical reasons for it as well but but somehow this has got to tie into what the hell they're doing yeah and well the the parshendi can leap the chasms so they're physiologically uh, they don't need bridges that i don't recall reading that yeah okay. no it's it's been mentioned that they can just most of the chasms, uh, some are obviously probably too big, but uh-huh. they have physical they have physical powers that the Alethi do not have. So a couple of the chasms are being mentioned as being too wide even for a Parshendi to leap. So oh, okay. mm-hmm. they they can just kind of bound around. They don't need quite need the bridges. You do get the sense that the bridges allow them to take the most direct route, and they want to be able to go different directions. Or they're they're faster. I, I'm not sure. That's the way it's been explained. But I think you're right to suspect. And Kaladin even 
starts to suspect that there's something going on here that doesn't add up. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, so that's one part of it too. I, when I was going through this, like I'm thinking about the slavery. There's a note in the next chapter as well that is also kind of got my wheels turning this direction. I'll bring it up when it comes up, but I'm almost getting to the point where I feel like it's deliberate, not callous. Like it's not that there's like a callous disregard for these people's lives, but maybe they're almost creating this like abject misery on purpose. Like they're manipulating something spiritually. I don't know. That might be way too out there. But it just seems like it's it's almost too cruel and miserable for it to just be random happenstance. It, you know, and it may not be that the Alethi are deliberately manipulating something, but there's something going on, like that's somehow tying all this together. I don't know what it is. Like, why is it that we don't see any spren related to any sort of negative emotions? We've seen fear spren. Okay, all right. That's true. And we don't see, I don't recall, other than Sill, the whole time that he's on these bridge crews, I don't remember, I don't remember him mentioning spren at all. Now, whereas it seems to come up just about everywhere else. I feel like there's, there's been life spren. That's gross. Listen, you put you put that many soldiers in one place. <laughs> oh god. You few people are going to slip in a couple puddles of life spren. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> I'm just saying there's a reason why you have to clean the barracks latrines <laughs> really well. Uh, I don't want to know about that reason. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, <laughs> no, I think those are all like you are. You're definitely picking up more than I did the first time I read this book. So uh, the other like I, I'm trying to also find a way to tie these things together. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't think I have enough, you know, I don't have enough raw materials yet to really do it. But the other thing that kind of comes out in this chapter is this is when we also find out that not only is Syl, you know, a, a a weirdo in that she's an anthropomorphic spren with a name, but she also knows about Kaladin's life from before the wagon train. Yeah, so that is definitely an interesting development. And she's also really struggling to watch him be depressed. Yeah. And she tells him that that she's going to have to leave, but she's afraid she's going to lose herself and that her instincts are telling her that she's supposed to stay near him. Yeah. So that's an interesting development as well. And obviously, this is a pretty uh, a big part of Kaladin's arc here. And um, I kind of geeked out a little <laughs> with the DSM-5. Oh, because you know how I love to diagnose fictional characters. You do. You do like to diagnose them. But what's really interesting, and it kind of ties this chapter and um, 
chapter and the next, 11. The ne- and chapter 11 together yeah. is, so there's this subtype of PTSD in the DSM-5. It's kind of a new thing, but it's called dissociative type. And well, dissociation has always been a characteristic of PTSD. And dissociation is when a person feels detached from themselves as a person or feels like they're not... Um, like sometimes they might feel like they're outside of their body. They don't feel like they're a real person. Mm-hmm. And it really stuck out to me, this quote here. Um, Kaladin says that he's like a boulder rolled down a hill or like rain fell from the sky. They didn't have a choice. Neither did he. He wasn't a man. He was a thing. And things did as they were told. And there's just this, not just sadness, this cloud of sadness over him, but just this air of detachment that he's really in this whole time he's been a slave. And so it made me think of this. And um, I I just was like, got in and was, and was reading a little bit more, more about this subtype of PTSD. And I just thought it was really well portrayed here. And it's especially common compared to um, other subtypes of PTSD in people with war trauma and other experiences where, you know, but you know, if, if someone has a traumatic experience, um, that's in in an environment that they're able to escape even theoretically it's different than when someone is in in a war or in you know some kind of childhood abuse Mm -hmm. situation where there is no nowhere for them to go yeah and they are more likely to have these dissociative episodes and have their disorder be characterized by that because that's their, the only way they can escape is by their brain just kind of shutting off. So just the more I read about it, the more I thought, well, this is a really kind of brilliant portrayal if it's done purposefully of this type of, of PTSD and, and really subtly done. And so, um, I will try to remember, help me remember. I can put the, the articles that I read, on the website. But it's Lanius et al. 2018. Okay. I'll try to remember to cite my sources. Okay. You cite your I'm sources. I'm kind of a stickler about that. <laughs> but no, it's really interesting. And when I read about um, the treatments that have been particularly effective for this subtype, um, they're ones that, you know, usually a lot of times with PTSD, you do exposure therapy and that's helpful too. But um, with this subtype, they're finding that some cognitive restructuring is especially helpful. And that is basically just. I mean, it's just a fancy way of saying finding that person's maladaptive thought patterns and um, challenging them, mm-hmm. which is exactly what Syl does in mm. chapter 11 when he has his turning point moment. So I just, it gave me like psych nerd goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because obviously I didn't know, I don't, I don't know all this stuff. You know, that's your wheelhouse i don't know all the different you know the ins and outs of this right and i didn't know you were going to bring that up either but i've been listening to uh dan carlin's he's a has a history podcast I, a lot of it's one of the more popular podcasts out there but i don't think you've listened to it but one of his uh, more recent ones was on world war one and they're talking about soldiers in world war one and that is probably I think World War One on the front might be one of the worst times in human history. Like, I just don't, I don't know that there's been, from a combat standpoint, I don't know that it's ever been worse than that. 
uh, you know, it's just hor- horrific what happened there. And listening to like letters from the soldiers who were like writing letters back home and having to 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 be like, I I, I don't know that I'm going to survive another day, you know. And, and I and I just spent some time thinking about that very thing to some degree that you have to be able to to be that person to come out of that trench and throw yourself up over that wall and walk into a hail of bullets when yesterday 80% of your unit got killed doing the same thing has got to put you in a state of mind where you have to disassociate yourself from your own fate and who you are. There's no other way to do it. So it's not surprising that soldiers who have that war experience would have this problem. It's not surprising that Kaladin, who, you know, and, and this is not what he's doing with the bridge is not unlike what people did, you know, in like the Normandy invasions, mm-hmm. you know, when they had to get off the boat with machine gun nests firing down upon them. And, you know, if you if you survived, you were one of the lucky 10 percent, you know, in some units, uh, you know, it, it, when I'm reading that, that was actually kind of what I was thinking about was, you know, what it must have been like for people on the Normandy invasions. So, yeah, it's not it's not surprising. Interesting that we both had things sort of related to that come up in the last couple of days. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. Um, and, and I mean, I say that with the caveat that like psych nerd aside, uh, it's, PTSD is not something that I have. So I, I can't speak when I say that I think this is well written. I can only say that as much in insofar as that from what I've read about. Yeah, yeah. I don't have this disorder and and obviously someone out there might have it and and be like no this is bullshit i remember reading um these these books by um they were like christian romance novels which Mm -hmm. i i kind of shudder not at the christian part because i'm all about like Mm. portrayals of faith in literature when it's well done but these were really kind of like cardboard I, I just a, not well done. <laughs> I was in a weird place in my life. Um, the char- the characters were terrible. I kind of like hate read them, but they had a, this this one character. There was always a bad guy. Okay, it was always, and they were always like taken. I don't know, but there was this one where the bad guy was this like this drug addict, and it was so obvious that this author had never met a drug addict in her life. Yeah. yeah. And it was just the most cartoonish portrayal of a drug addict. And I, I, because of my personal experience and having a lot of experience in that personal experience in that area, it enraged me more than I have only thrown a book (laughs) in anger three times in my life. And I've read a lot of books and that was one of them. <laughs> and the another was the red wedding. And the third is kind of embarrassing. I'm not going to tell you about it. <laughs> I'm going to save that for a different podcast. Well, I know. I mean, I also don't have PTSD. I, I know. I don't want to say several people, but I, I, I've known a handful of people who I've been friends with or have been close to who, who have had PTSD. So, so I've been around it, but I definitely 
it's not something that I would feel particularly educated to talk on, even in, even in the slightest. And yet we did. And yet we did. Exactly. <laughs> it's okay. That's what we do sometimes. <laughs> we talk out of our donkeys. <laughs> oh, now we're not going to curse? 59 episodes in. I'm trying. Okay, I'm trying right. to be a better person. <laughs> okay. Over here. <laughs> Sounds like you're talking out of your donkey to me. <laughs> you're the one talking about life sprint all night long. It was, I mean, <laughs> it's in the book. I don't know what else you're supposed to call it. I mean. So chapter 10. It's called Stories of Surgeons. And in this chapter, Kaladin remembers the conversation with his father that gets mentioned in the last chapter. I don't know if we covered it, but it was a conversation regarding whether or not it was possible to save lives by killing. And the conversation happens over the surgery on a young girl of their village. We learn that Kaladin's family didn't quite fit in with their little village and that Kaladin's father wanted him to be a, a, sur- a surgeon, not a soldier, and that he's been saving up to send him to Carbranth to study there. Yeah, and this was a short chapter, but a telling one in terms of just giving us some more backstory on Kaladin and learning what this is all about. You kind of have to wonder, you know, how does this child of a surgeon who apparently is, you know, has his own experience at it, is quite gifted— how does he, you know, end up becoming a soldier, a relatively low-ranking soldier in this army? How does he end up in this fate, you know? What I thought was most interesting, I mean, to me anyway, was most interesting in this chapter, is from from just talking about his personality, his background, is that even at this young age, he seems very committed to the idea that he is going to be a soldier and join the army. Now, not that there aren't a lot of young boys who feel that way. Obviously, it's highly common. But it's interesting that everything we've seen about him at every stage, when he was a child, when he was a soldier, when he was a slave, he always still wants to be a soldier. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this this chapter, I mean, is short, but it addresses one of the kind of core crises that Kaladin seems to face, which is the idea of uh, saving lives. Mm-hmm. And in this, it's this question of, can I save lives by fighting, by killing? And the Kaladin that we see, the slave Kaladin, the Bridgman Kaladin, seems to have answered that, that no, that's impossible. And that all of his efforts to save anyone have always just gotten people killed. And he seems to kind of be carrying that burden of guilt. Yeah. So we see, you know, other characters mentioned here, Tien, um, Kaladin's little brother. And we find out that's his little brother. We knew, we knew Tien was mentioned as one of the people who had died. And now we find out it's his younger brother. And we meet Liren, Kaladin's father, who, um, again, he's a small-town surgeon. He trained as a surgeon, but not in Carbranth. And that the villagers all think he's strange, and they kind of resent him. It's pretty. It's a pretty common hero's family trope, you know, the 
the educated family that everyone kind of resents a little bit or outsiders of some kind yeah. right so, and Kaladin is kind of an outsider as well um, but he and he, we also find out that he cares too much and he has trouble detaching during the surgeries because he cares too much about what's happening so those are all just little little tidbits and this is the chapter where they mention he mentions seeing the girl's safe hand which is you know all the boys you know tease him about seeing all the girls left hands and yeah it's always just kind of like like surprising yeah and he's like i didn't i didn't get it <laughs> and there's a it like an interesting commentary on the social structure here where his father is talking to him about going to carbaranth and he says you know our grandfathers bought and worked up to the second non so that we could have full citizenship and the right of travel so the social structure seems to include some type of like serfs who aren't allowed to leave their villages so they can't just pick up you can't just pick up and move to another part of the country if you want to. If you're not a citizen, you know, you're not a slave, but you also, you're stuck where you are. Yeah, and that's kind of at the heart of feudalism. And this is, appears to be a feudalistic society. Right. But Kaladin and his family have, have worked their way up to the second non, so it's unclear as to why they don't leave if they're not in a good situation. Every time I go to a restaurant, an Indian restaurant, I work my way up to at least the third non. The third non. So one of the things I did note in here, and I was going to ask this at the beginning of the podcast, but it we get a little hint of it here, so I could I held off until it was more appropriate. But is the conversation around radiance? Because last time in the in the last podcast, I, I wanted to ask you about radiance and I wanted to also ask you about ardence. And we ended up getting on this conversation about ardence and, we, and I never came back to the question because I wanted to be like, what are radiance? Now, I still don't really know, but we do get some history here where Liren says that the radiance were an order of knights founded by the heralds. So I believe the heralds were the ones that we talked about in the very in the prelude. And so I'm assuming then that the radiance were founded by them. And he also says, uh, Cal says, they're demons. And he says, no, they're not demon, demons. They were just men who betrayed us. And can you tell me? Were the characters we saw in the prelude, were those are the heralds? Or I, I'm pretty sure that you know at this point that those were the heralds. I, I mean, it's pretty strongly yes. hinted at. I just didn't know if there was going to be some sort of surprise. Ha-ha, that's, they're not who you thought they were uh, thing going on. So the reason why that's sort of an interesting comment to me is the very conversation they he has with the king there, I, of course, I can't remember any of their names, but where he says, you know, what will we tell the people, you know, and he said, tell them we won. Mm -hmm. And then they create a group of knights who ends up betraying the people. So I don't know, there's something there well, that I haven't... Well, they also say in that um, prelude, before they decide to tell them that they won, they say, what are they going to do without us? And Jezreel the king says, well, they have the they have the radiance to guide them. 
So mm, the Radiants okay. at that point are already established. Okay, I see. Okay, uh, gotcha. Kind of already out there. Ha- presumably having been f- having fought in the battle because if you remember, you had these people who were like in skins and bronze weapons and then you yeah, had yeah. these people in the sophisticated armor. So those are the Radiants. Okay. I mean, that's the assumption. Gotcha, okay. I almost feel like a Chandrian vibe mm. with the Radiants. Like I don't, not an equivalency exactly but i almost sort of get that same vibe powerful ancient things who i suspect are going to come back around we'll see we'll see we'll see okay so chapter 11 is called droplets and i jotted down the part of the quote at the beginning of this chapter and it says three of 16 ruled but now the broken one reigns I, that's one of the only ones that I actually paid attention to this time. And again, you know, so, uh, three of the 16 and I'm like, uh, don't, don't remember those numbers coming up. There's 10 heralds, you know, so I don't know what the hell it means. Um, I suspect complete guess who was the one herald they left behind to get tortured. Talonel. I suspect that's the broken one. We'll see. So in this chapter, uh, Kaladin uh, heads out in into the tail end of a high storm to visit the honor chasm. This is a chasm that the bridgemen use to commit suicide. But he's interrupted by Syl, who returns with a black bane leaf for him. She thought that the leaf would make him happy as he had liked the other ones he had so much, not knowing that he was planning on using them to possibly poison himself. Mm -hmm. But she convinces him to try and save the Bridgman since they're doomed anyway. And he decides to give it one more try. And he heads back to the barracks with a new sense of purpose. He's able to knock Gaz down a few pegs, but then he offers him a bribe to let Kaladin do whatever he wants as a bridge leader. And he gets each of the Bridgman to tell him their names and then settles down to plan how he's going to help them. So we really see a turning point for this character. I thought it's interesting, you know, the way he's kind of comes back to himself and he decides that um, the quote I wrote down is Kaladin Stormbless was dead, but Kaladin Bridgman was of the same blood and a descendant with potential. Yeah, it's a pretty quick emotional turnaround there. And he does pretty quickly go back to being the Kaladin you meet in the first chapter, you know, um, he, he, it reminds me a lot, again, of Quoth. When he comes out of Tarbian, you know, he goes into Tarbian being a young but highly capable, very brilliant person. And he spends three years in this just abject misery, and he becomes almost like an animal. And then he gets out of the other side of it, and he starts to kind of regain that personality again. And you can sort of see the same thing happening here. Well, and it's interesting because I think what we see Syl do for him is to take his, his core maladaptive idea, which is the idea that he's responsible for the deaths or suffering of everyone he's ever tried to help. Okay. And she just reframes it. And she says to him, well, 
there's nothing more you could do to these guys. They're going to die anyway. They're already as miserable as anyone's ever going to make them. So you can't really hurt them. You can't make it any worse. Why not at least try one more time? Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't like all of a sudden become happy or like, but he he finds a reason to go on. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of determination and a purpose. Well, yeah. And if they're going to, I mean... The worst thing that's going to happen to you here, and I was even thinking this when I read it, they're like, he's like, they save beheading, especially for, you know, Bridgman. And I'm like, that, that's probably the the best thing that could happen to you. Like, <laughs> you know, like, at least it's quick and it's over with. Like, you know, it's probably, you know, the best ending you could really hope for. Like. Is that really all that bad, given the circumstances, you know? So, yeah, if you're just going to, and if you're just going to throw yourself off a cliff anyway, you know, you might you might as well. I have to admit, so, he comes out of the chasm, he walks up to Gaz, he th- slams him on the ground and chokes him, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm almost a little embarrassed by this. I was like, yes, he's going to create a slave revolt. <laughs> like, and they're gonna they're gonna take over the whole army right now. Like, it is an incredibly satisfying moment. Yeah, and then and of course he doesn't do that because that would not really make any sense, right? You know, and I had to be like, oh yeah, okay, that doesn't yeah that doesn't make any sense. And but. he slams him down. He says, "The world just changed, Gaz. I died down in that chasm." You're dealing with my vengeful spirit now. It's very satisfying. It's, it's a good uh, moment. It's very dramatic. Yeah. It is. It's very dramatic. But, you know, one one note I made about Gaz was that, um, A, we, we have it reinforced that he's cowardly, that he's greedy, that he's in some kind of financial trouble. Because when Kaladin seems it, sees him, he is also out in the end of this high storm. And he's not in the the period of the high storm called the riddens, which is just kind of rain. There's still like wind and it's still pretty heavy out there, mm-hmm. but Gaz is out there protecting his basket of spheres. And so we find out that spheres that have lose their stormlight, um, they're called dun spheres. Stormlight is in the, in these high storms. That's yeah. That, why it's called stormlight. Yeah. That was, that was one of my notes as well, that leaving them out in the storm, you can recharge them. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and because dun spheres are worth like a tiny bit less than other spheres, if you're very poor, you would go out, hang them in these baskets to recharge. And yeah. Gaz is not only doing that, but he's out there kind of protecting his spheres. So he's obviously in some pretty serious financial trouble. And when Kaladin finally lets him up off of the ground, um, you know, he holds him down and he, he says, you know, this is it. Things are going to change. I'm going to take over bridge four and you're going to stay out of my way. It says that Gaz worries, looks worried about something more than Kaladin's threats. Yeah. So there's some kind of greater machination going on there. I also thought it was interesting that we, we see Syl come back with this leaf so, A, she did come back and, and remember herself, and she also remembers the gratitude of the men in the army, and that's what drew her to Kaladin. Also, we learned she can't lift very much. <laughs> the black bane leaf pretty much wipes her out. So. She's like, I flew this stupid leaf <laughs> from like 14 feet away. 
And boy, are my arms tired, you know. But it gives you an idea of like what physically she's capable of. So you you don't imagine that in the future she's going to be a oh well maybe Syl can like bring him his spear or Or something like no grab a set of keys. No, she is not not bringing you your diet coke later. No, (laughs) not gonna happen. Not gonna happen. So. Uh, two other things I noted in here, Kremlings, which we've heard a couple of other mm-hmm. times. I, I don't think they've been described, though, other than being some sort of creature. There's some sort of like crustacean looking. Uh, I, okay, yeah. It's Most in, of the creatures, I think, are, are like crustaceans, basically. Th- well, yeah, that's actually what I was going to say is that, so we've got Chull and Kremlings, which are, you know, like... They have an exoskeleton, they're crabs and crustaceans and insects. And then we have sky eels. It's like, are we in a world, like when we see something like a tarantula, most of us were like that enormous freaking scorpion I saw on vacation. Oh, God. Like most of us see, you know, a five inch long scorpion and go, holy Jesus, and freak out, right? Or have some sort of negative reaction. But in a manly way. But no, no. (laughs) You didn't freak out in a manly way? No. No, no, I didn't. I actually, I mean, I'm proud of myself. I didn't actually freak out. Uh, But I sure as hell just walked away from (laughs) I was like, you know, I think we're just going to leave that right there. (laughs) Anyway, my point being, you know, but we see something like a panda bear and we're all cute and cuddly. Is this the opposite there? Like, or like, yes. Do they see, would they see spiders and be like, oh, you know, and sky eels, which are f- freaky to me, you know, and they're like, oh, you know, but if they saw a parrot, would they be like, ooh? Pro- probably. <laughs> like, you know, like koala bear, that's fucking terrifying, you know? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I, I it's not really spoilery to say like they, they've talked about axe hounds. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. like later on you see a picture and it looks like a giant like grasshopper weird insect thing. Oh, it has okay. like antenna and stuff, but that's like their puppy dogs, you know? Yeah, I, so he said like, um, yeah, like when you know, boys want an axe hound and yeah. only to find out that it's, you know, more annoying than they imagined, you know? No, yeah, they would be freaked out by puppies. I assumed that was just like a really vicious dog. No. So no, an actual it's... puppy, they would, you know, they'd be holding at an arm's length and going, oh, yeah. get it away from me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. That's interesting. Okay. Um, and then another palindrome reference is Kellogg. Oh, yeah. So there's five in this section. Dang. So how many did I miss in the first section? I don't even know. So Okay. Go right. back. Okay. All right. So overall, what'd you think? Uh, so this section was not quite as enjoyable as last section because I just think it was some heavier material. Yeah. Uh, but not like, not like worse from a writing standpoint or anything, mm-hmm. just, just a little bit, a little bit more serious uh, stuff here, but I enjoyed it overall. I'm looking forward to kind of getting into a different part and, and moving, moving the storyline forward. Yeah. So, are you ready for interactions with listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, well, over on Twitter, we had a poll going. We did. Okay. We I did. Did you miss the poll? I don't remember it. So it was it was right after our last episode aired. So it was a week ago. But 77% of participants would prefer to be a herald in Roshar oh, yes, than a bus driver in Mississippi. <laughs> 
we might be we might be uh, overdoing it a little bit. <laughs> like, you know what? Seventy for seven percent of participants in that poll would not agree. You know, I mean, when you get enough people together, they can't be wrong. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Yeah, that's funny. Obviously, there's quite a lot of of back and forth in in all of our social media. So we're kind of I'm kind of pulled out um, direct questions and stuff. But um, Ian James Crone says at the Duke, what is your opinion of Alethi military leadership as a veteran? You know, so he he asked this question. Uh, thanks, Ian, for the question. And I, I got your question. And my initial sort of thought was. It's strange that I didn't spend more time kind of thinking about that. And I gave him kind of a quick answer on Twitter. But when I read stories that are these sort of medieval period pieces with conflict and war, I just sort of generally assume that there's going to be shit leadership and piss poor tactics because by a modern standard, that's generally what you got, you know, um, not, not all the time, of course. I mean, and certainly there were great military leaders at that time, uh, you know, but by today's standards, if you look at a lot of the strategy and, and tactics that were employed, you, you find a lot of things that we would never in a million years do today. Even throwing the technology part of it out, we just wouldn't we just wouldn't do those things. So I sort of don't even try to judge it by those standards. But this was particularly difficult because the whole time I'm reading about what they're doing, especially the first time I read about the bridge crew when they when they finally kind of got to where they were going and then defeated the Parshendi or at least chased them off. I was like, okay, we have a victory here. And then when they just turned and left, I was like, what What the fuck? And like, didn't like defend the place or, you know, or build permanent bridges and build structures to defend it. I'm like, why, what did you just do? Like you just, why did you just throw all these people's lives away for nothing? You know, you can... You can also just see sort of the, uh, I guess favoritism for lack of a better word, but just the like, just the poor way that people treat each other. Like there's just, there's no discipline, but you know, my experience in being in the, in the field with, uh, with the infantry and the times that I've been, uh, that I, that I have done that, you can see from unit to unit to unit where there's shit leadership, there's shit discipline and where there's good leadership there tends to be much better it's not perfect but you can tell like you can go from because i've done this you can go from like one battalion go over to the next battalion and it's a completely different dynamic and i just can't kind of can't help but think we see these really undisciplined soldiers in sedeus's camp and that's gonna point back to him boom mic drop yeah, but but the thing that's difficult about it, and the reason why I've been kind of uh, I was hesitant, is because I still feel like, just like he says, in ch- I think it's chapter nine, he says, I-, I feel like I'm missing a piece of the puzzle. I feel that way too. Like I feel like there's got to be more to it, 
then, you know, like, I don't think these guys are just playing war game and getting people killed for funsies. There's got to be something else going on that I just, we just haven't gotten yet. So that leads me to want to sort of hold off and not make harsh judgments because I just don't feel like I have all the answers to really make that judgment call. Good answer. It was a lot of words. That was a lot of words. So there you go. Um, So Ian James Crone says at the Duchess, how does Shallan succeed as a strong female character? And, um, well, let me tell you, Ian, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) So this is a hard question to answer without getting kind of spoilery. Um, I would say I really, I enjoy the character of Shallan. She doesn't irritate me. She's an interesting female character, which to me is almost more important than having a strong female character. So I would say she's strong in the way that, that she is, I, I, feel that she is well-written and she is interesting and relatable in in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, I would say. She has some, some areas of her personality that was strong. She has some areas where I think she's brittle rather than strong. But I, again, I can't get too much into it, but she's got a great arc. I, I really enjoy her. Yeah, I haven't read enough of it to get into the character's at the depth that like I feel when we talk about like a you know Brandon Stark or a Jamie Lannister or a Quoth we're only 11 chapters in uh so I, I don't know if uh, so it's you kind of it's hard for me to like take myself back and say you know what did I think 11 chapters into a Game of Thrones did you know or or the name of the wind. I can't really put myself in that position to say, did I feel the same way about Quoth as I do about Kaladin as a character or Shallan as a character? I don't, I really know. I think it just have to kind of time will tell. So Ian James Crone also says at both mental illness as a trope is Brandon Sanderson insensitive to those with mental health issues. I mean, I'm going to give my answer first because it'll sure. be ve- it'll be very short. I haven't seen anything in what we've read so far that would lead me to believe that he would be dismissive or insensitive to people with mental health issues. Maybe I, I sort of feel like that maybe that's a question that would I might be able to answer later, but I haven't seen anything one way or the other at this point. And so I, I, we partially addressed this um, when we were talking about Kaladin and PTSD and is that what Brandon Sanderson was intending to portray? It seems like that to me. So, I mean, my opinion is that was well-written uh, with the caveat that that's not something I have direct experience with. So someone are we who... Like, are we like all the people who read that romance novel who thought, man, this, oh, this drug addict character... Oh, those poor drug addicts, is... they're terrible. I, I mean, are <sighs> we doing that right now? I don't know. I and hope we just, not. We just don't realize it. I hope not. I'm sorry to my friends who also you know struggle with that. And, and again, yeah. um, people have strong feelings about this. But for me, I just think that we have this unique opportunity and ability to develop empathy for fictional characters because we can actually see through their eyes. We can be in their mind. So we can develop empathy for them in a way that we almost can't for 
other real people. So I feel that like having characters with mental illness is so important. And it's so important to have that representation. And I think it goes a long way towards fighting stigma. And there's a lot of stigma against people with mental illness. So I think it's really important to address it um, and and not disrespectful. And for me, I don't see the portrayals of various mental illnesses that we see in his work as as disrespectful. To me, like an example of somebody, somebody being insensitive to people with mental health issues would be like the old school Joker from the Batman. Yeah. Eric Algier says, what are the chances that one of the Capri Suns friends circling Liz will gain sentience and start chiming in as a guest host? I said only if it buys its own microphone. I didn't even drink my Capri Sun tonight. It's sitting there right behind well, you, unopened. I'll, this is my night to drink a Capri Sun. <laughs> I only give you one of those a week. I, I have to finish it before, before the podcast ends. Oh, goodness. That's funny. Okay. So, yes, that's our answer. Possibly is the answer. M- maybe. Time, we'll see. Time will tell. As long as the life spread don't start gaining sentience. Uh, that's... It happened several times. Oh, damn, I'm going down the rabbit hole. It's happened four times in our in our house. You're right, and they're fucking needy. They for are. the record, and they can't carry black bane leaves either. No, they're goddamn weak as hell. Helpless, absolutely useless. Helpless as a wind's bren. <laughs> oh goodness. Who? That got personal. All right. <laughs> Theo Graham Bell um, always posts a, a a very thorough and in-depth reaction oh, I thread. I didn't read it because, oh yeah, because of just timing. You don't want to be spoiled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I didn't read it. I usually try to read it before we podcast, but I didn't, I didn't, didn't have time. So. so yeah, let me take this moment to plug and encourage people to check out, if you haven't, the Facebook group page. It's a secret group. Um, but you just put in a request. You have to go into the search bar of Facebook and type in the Duke and Duchess podcast. Yeah, I'll give the URL real quick. It's Facebook backslash groups backslash the DND group. Yeah, so we've got like 80 or 90 people on there and... Um, 94, not that I'm counting. <laughs> But listeners can start posts and post pictures, and we have some really hilarious discussions. So if you're not on there, you're definitely missing out. Check it out. Um, But Theo on there, he always posts a really long thread and very thorough, and so I'm going to hit some of the highlights. He was not a fan of the Thalen names either. Oh, yeah. The missing vowels. Yeah, that was rough. And um, he was not super down with the social structure. He felt it was a little bit muddled. And I think we talked a little bit about you know, the difference between glyphs and actual reading. So yeah. I think that that clarifies that a little bit. He he w- wondered if Seth is a radiant or a descendant of one. Hmm. That's interesting. And um, he said he, he wasn't a fan of Brandon Sanderson's sort of mystery box antics. He felt like there was a lot of character history that we're not privy to and that it feels like like an artificial mystery, especially I think when it comes to Shallan. Um, but he also loved the action sequences as well. And I think we went just kind of back and forth a little bit on that. 
And and he we did talk a little bit more about whether we could go into the interconnected nature of Sanderson's stuff without spoiling. And it, it's it's hard to, it's really hard to. But if you read his some of his other books, and again that the book that goes into it the most is called Arcanum Unbounded, and like I said, it's a collection of short stories. Um, and you can read. He's got a disclaimer in front of each short story that says whether or not you can read it without spoiling. Like some mm, are yeah. like prequels, some are written after certain books, so it would spoil that certain book. Yeah, yeah. So, and some are just kind of standalones. And so he, one of the stories in there is called um, Shadows for Silence in the Forests of Hell. And it's excellent. Hmm, okay. I, I read it like three times when I had the book. It's really, really excellent. So, and in it, he breaks down the different planets of the Cosmere and and different things about them. So if you're interested, it also breaks down, I mean, the the crux of the connection really is this central creation myth. Um, There's this one God who kind of like it created these different, it's hard to explain, Mm -hmm. but um, kind of breaks down the central creation myth that connects all the different planets together but the connections are not plot crucial at all they're really more like easter eggs they're very subtle but yeah if you're interested i would recommend kind of reading some of the other books and maybe checking out arcanum unbounded um for that um chuck spurlock really liked that you referenced dan carlin yeah and we also got some love from eric algier for our through fear hawat references you gotta love that thufer love him Love him. I so, tell you what, it's only by the juice of Safu that I'm getting through this podcast right now because it's late as hell. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so why don't you hit us with your predictions now? Well, actually, I have um, one one other listener interaction that I want to bring up, actually. And that is that we had our first interaction on our Instagram page. Nice. I didn't even check the Insta. That's right. Yeah. And so I want to thank you to uh, Ian, I believe it's Trezis, so I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, but he said, um, he said, Chad with a hard C and Flash, that was what I was referencing <laughs> earlier. <No. laughs> he said, I'm a Mississippi bus driver with a bus full of Swedish chiropractors, and we still love the D&D podcast. <laughs> So, so thank you, Ian. I, That's I, awesome. We appreciate that very much. So <laughs> thank you so much. So uh, n- yes, now I will get into my predictions. I have a few predictions uh, this time. So f- some of these are kind of, you know, some of these Softballs. are, yeah, some of these are not real stretches, right? So uh, the first one who's, it's a real softball is that we will see brightness a shawl again. Okay. Yeah, that's a softball. Right. Mm. Also, uh, Helleron, Shallan's oldest brother, mm-hmm. he's going to show up alive some point, at some point too. All right. So those those are a couple of softballs. I'm trying to get from least tinfoily to most tinfoily here, mm-hmm. so just bear with me. Uh, the chrysalises on the shattered planes have something to do with the stormlight and the binding magic. Okay. Again, not a, not a real stretch, right? I think Shallan killed her father with a shard blade. Okay. I don't think she, like, cut him with it. I think it was... 
either accidental or even if it was on purpose, I don't think she actually hit him with the blade. Uh, hard to say. Regarding the spren, I think that spren attach themselves to people when they're spawned and their deeds, the person's deeds shape them and certain powerful deeds can drive them to become anthropomorphic. So I think the sprens, particularly the ones that, um, it's almost like, so my, my imagination of it is that like, you know, these incidents occur and all these spren, like, like so many sperm are spilled (laughs) and some of them catch a hold of something and then they bind themselves to that person. And then if that person does really great and dramatic deeds, it strengthens the spren. That's it. It's a good prediction. These spren are driving me nuts. (laughs) What's driving you nuts about them? Well, that there are some sort of apparent inconsistencies and just sort of the randomness of it at this point that it seems to me like, you know, when you start talking about anticipation spren and creative spren, you know, when something's going on, I sort of think, why aren't there constantly spren all the time around everybody? And maybe they are, and we just can't see them. I don't know, but I sort of feel like, wouldn't wouldn't there just be spread all the time? Well, it's kind of addressed. And I think that a couple times they say, nobody knows why. Sometimes you draw a spread, sometimes you don't. Nobody knows why. Bullshit. But, well, <laughs> that is. But as far as the people who live here are concerned, it's just so completely normal. That's just what they're, as far as they know, there's no rhyme or reason to just it. Just like, like electricity. It, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. Yeah, don't exactly. Know. Don't no know. idea. No idea. Gotcha. So those are those are my predictions. You know what? It's like the snacks that get left out in the living room. Sometimes they're there. Sometimes they're not. Nobody leaves. Nobody knows where they come yeah. from. You just have to deal with it. Sometimes there's just, you know, random bits of peanut butter cups on the floor. Who knows? Somebody leaves a piece of cheese on a doorknob. Snacks, Bren. <laughs> Yeah, I think we have some snacks, Bren, in this house. So that is all I have. Do you have anything else? I have nothing else. All right. So you can find us on the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com, on Twitter at the DND Podcast, on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess, and the Facebook group page, as I said, at uh, Facebook backslash groups backslash the DND group, on our Instagram at the Duke and Duchess Podcast. If you like what you've heard, uh, you can leave us a review on iTunes, on Stitcher, on the Google Play Store. We love those things. We love getting uh, reviews from folks. If you really love us, uh, then what we also love so much is word of mouth. Tell somebody. Tell a friend. uh, Tell your coworkers. Put it out there on social media. And uh, we love that stuff. And we love you guys. And thank you for interacting with us. And we will see you in episode 60 and episode 60 we're going to read through the end of chapter chapter 14 14. all right good night everybody don't forget the interludes don't don't forget them (laughs) all right good night good night